Heavenly Father, we know that no eye has seen, no ear has heard what you have planned for those who love you, and yet you've given us such a rich treasure trove of information and just an access to your will through your word. We pray that you'd give us humble hearts to accept the things that are said in here, to that you just open our eyes so that we could behold wondrous things from your word, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, the topic today is human destiny, and I just thought I'd open with a very famous quote. So according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question, in fact, it begins with, what is the chief end of man? And the answer that they give is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, this speaks of the purpose for which mankind was created. And this that denotes kind of the importance of the progress of the study here, right? So we talked about the synthetic nature of, of systematic theology. And we have to, had to talk about creation, sin, Christ, and redemption in order to understand our broader topic, which is the image of God in mankind. And now we're going to be treating of glorification and communion with God. Now, just a reminder, uh, our broader uh, thesis has been that humanity was created actually in God's image as God's very image itself. That is, it pertains to the whole person, both soul and body. You know, remember from Genesis 2-7 that Adam was formed from the ground and then God breathed into him the breath of life. That's all-inclusive. It's holistic. And that means it includes uh, every moral, relational, corporate, spiritual, somatic, as well as intellectual faculty. And that we also talked about last week a bit more how that means sin is also totally pervasive. And it's affected the entire human race, that we're as it were, born sinners. We talked about that a little bit from Romans 5, 12 to 21. Sin entered in and despoiled the creation's relationship with God. In fact, you'll recall Genesis 3, 8, remember God shows up in the garden walking to find Adam and Eve and have communion with them, and what did they do? They hid. This violated that covenant that God had created with them in Genesis 2, 16 to 17. And that meant that there needed to be a renewal of this image, a renewal that only Jesus Christ, who Colossians 1.15 says is the image of the invisible God, only he could affect. Thus, uh, Christians by the Holy Spirit, according to Colossians 3.10, have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And that's a pledge that we have from Christ of restoration of both body and soul. In 1 Corinthians 15, 49, it it says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Or Philippians 3, 20 to 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his earthly glory, by the exertion of his of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. 
Now, this leaves us with the subject of the future state of humanity. And at this point, our study diverges between two paths. You'll recall last week we quoted Romans 6.23. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's going to form a broad outline of our entire study for this morning. We're going to, on the one hand, talk about death and what it means to be dead, both in every possible and conceivable category, theologically speaking. And then we're going to be talking about life, on the other hand, and what true eternal life means. But, of course, both of those have to do with one destiny, one human destiny, which is to glorify God. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The only question is, how? And once again, this takes us back to the garden. In Genesis 2, 16 to 17, that covenant I mentioned earlier, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And you'll recall that we talked, that, that, that spoke of Adam as our representative. He did eat. And in fact, even though it didn't look like it, he did die. And that brings up the question, what is death? Death can be defined, uh, biblically speaking, as a separation of something that has been constituted by God to be held in unity. And this is written about about going quite a bit uh, back into church history by Augustine and before him a a church father named Lactantius. Um, And they talked about these different categories of death. And this particular category is spiritual death. This is a spiritual death that Adam separates immediately upon sin. It's a separation of the soul from God. Genesis 3.8 said that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid himself from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That was a break in the spiritual relationship. You know the word there, to walk. That implies actually a more of a presence and a communion with God that was broken when they hid from him. As 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, In Adam all die. And note that that's not just a spiritual death, but that that has uh, also affected a physical death. The curse of Genesis 3.19 says, By the sweat of your face... You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Note that, that of course, God should have killed them physically, spiritually, and as we're going to see eternally at that very moment. This is judicial language here. Um, And he had a legal right as the supreme judge to kill them. However, he also had within the right of the judge, what's called a temporal judicial relaxation. He had the right to relax the law to effect a greater purpose. Of course, the law was going to be fulfilled. But, and this is pointed ahead to uh, by this animal skin sacrifices we see in Genesis 3.21, where God kills the animal to clothe Adam and Eve. And that speaks of the greater 
purpose that God had in view. A promised provision in the seed of the woman from Genesis that he promised in Genesis 3.15. As Romans 5.12 said, however, death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam's one transgression. And that's demonstrable in that litany of repetition in Genesis 5 that says, and he died, and he died, and he died, in that genealogy. That speaks to the separation of the body from the soul. And that's most kind of empiric- and most empirically demonstrable fact. All human beings die. Therefore, we're all sinners. By the way, uh, this uh, eminence to the body and the idea that the body itself is a part of the image of God that's affected by sin, affected by death, uh, that's why we give eminence as Christians to the human body after death. Augustine, Calvin, uh, Bavinck, uh, and, and lately Al Mohler actually uh, have all talked about this. Al Mohler in particular in relation to this idea of the incineration of the body of the king of Thailand. Uh, it was a couple weeks ago to free his soul from his body. And he noted the difference between that worldview and the Christian worldview, noting the peculiarity of the dignity given to the human body after death. It's still in God's image. And that's why Christian tradition has treated the body with a dignity after death. Note also Ecclesiastes 12.7. It says this, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to the God who gave it. And that speaks more so of the presence of the soul in the afterlife, either uh, in torture in hell or life in heaven, which we'll talk about um, but that brings up the subject of the intermediary state. Luke 16, 19 to 31, uh, as well as uh, some 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 8, uh, talk about uh, the fact that the soul continues to exist in the afterlife in one of these states or another. In fact, it seems to even bear some sort of body-like form, and that gets back to the idea of the essential nature of the body. Um, you'll recall in Matthew 17.3, as well as depictions of the future in, in Revelation 6, 9 to 11, uh, that there seem to be humans walking around with some recognizable physical form. We don't exactly know what that's going to look like. Um, it seems to be a kind of temporary provisional body that's been given to us that isn't the same as our bodies here on earth. Uh, but after our bodies have been separated from our souls after our death, it seems as though we're going to be able to interact with the environment in some sort of way like this, and that we'll be, in a way, like the angels and how they're able to take on some sort of corporeal manifestation that's accidental, it's only temporary. Either way, it's unavoidable that we're going to, at some point, face death, uh, physically as well as eternally. In Hebrews 10.21 says, It is appointed for men to die once, then comes judgment. That brings up that third and final category of death, which is eternal death. Or it's also known as the second death, um, which brings us straight to the great white throne judgment. So turn with me to Revelation. Revelation 20. going to be reading Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it. 
from his presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up, gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, note here in, in these, this text, which of course we can't get into in great detail, um, but it's speaking of the resurrection not only of believers, which is, I think, what we generally think about, but also non-believers as well, of everyone. Everyone in humanity as a psychosomatic, a unity made in the image of God. That is, uh, when it talks furthermore about death in this passage, it's talking about the second death as a great separation, not just of the soul from God, but of both body and soul from God forever. First Thessalonians 1.9 says, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And there's a chilling reality here. Um, in the what's called you know damnation, eternal damnation, separation of body and soul from God, it's speaking of the of the continuation of the image of God, even in hell, and that's important. Bruce Demarest, who's a famous theologian today, contemporary, says this: Hell represents sinners' ultimate separation from the life of God. Hell's ultimate agony is that image bearers should have missed the lofty purpose for which they were created. In fact, it's Francis Turretin who has this chilling quote. They are said to live forever that they may die forever. It's a living death. And in Romans 9.22, in fact, it says that in this state, in the ultimate state here, and within God's destiny and purposes, people are going to be augmented and fitted in their final bodily forms as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. They're, in a way, glorifying God and receiving wrath, which is a difficult theological truth. And it's, in fact, a terrifying reality, a fully sensible experience, both body and soul. Isaiah 66, 24. For their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be in abhorrence to all mankind. In fact, it was Lactantius who wrote about this, and he says this, quote, Because they have committed sins with their bodies, they will again be clothed with flesh, so that they may bear the sin's suffering in their bodies. That speaks of a retributive justice, a direct equity between what people have committed in this life as sins and the eternal punishment they're going to be perfectly fitted to receive in all eternity. In fact, it was Augustine who talked about the agony of the soul and the body and this eternal kind of inability to function properly when reunited. It's a disharmony that they can never, ever get back, that they'll always strive for and never make progress. 
Luke 16.23 says, uh, the uh, rich man in Hades, it says this, in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And that speaks of the sight of the blessedness of the saints, the idea that they can actually possibly even see into heaven, see into the glories of heaven that they're missing out on. But they'll have an in, eternal inability to reach it. That is to say, in summary, uh, this eternal state of the second death, the eternal death, speaks of the, the fact that we're going to be resurrected in body and soul, the, the, those who are, are, are damned, and they're going to have the image of God fitted perfectly to receive not communion with God, but his wrath and eternal separation from him forever. Now, that was the first point, speaking of the three states of death, spiritual death, physical death, and then eternal death. And so we're going to turn to the second point, which provides much more of a contrast, which is eternal life in Christ. Eternal life in Christ. And that speaks, by the way, of a quality, not necessarily of duration. John 17.3 says this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Or in the words of 1 Corinthians 15.49, which we looked at last week, will be bearing the image of the heavenly. In fact, later on in that passage, it says in verse 52 that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, uh, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So there's a quality that's imparted there. That is, in that passage where it speaks of us being changed, and we're going to be changed into conformity with Christ. First John 3, 2. We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Or again, as I quoted earlier, Philippians 3, 20-21. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So, you know, I think it's helpful sometimes to just stop and ask him, why does the Bible focus so much on the physical resurrected body of Christ? According to Luke 2239, uh, he, he's speaking to the disciples. He says, See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. That is to say, uh, he's saying there that it's the very same body that he died in. And Calvin speaks of Christ's resurrection as the pledge of our coming resurrection. In this mirror, the living image of resurrection is visible to us. That is to say, when we see Jesus Christ, he, when he's walking around with his body and he's saying, I have those, pier those piercings through my body, that that's a vouchsafe for the very bodies that you're going to have in resurrection and that you can have confidence um, that, as Job says, that, that I will see God with my eyes and not another, Job 19 27. These are newly resurrected bodies. They're pure without corruption of sin. 
That's why the passage we read earlier refers to them as heavenly or spiritual. And here I have to commend the work of, of Francis Turretin, who I quoted earlier, who just has this beautifully beatific vision of the heavenly state. And I appreciate with him, he's very biblical in his approach as well. He never makes a statement without first saying what's the biblical passage that's going to furnish this text for us. He says this, All defects will be removed from the bodies to which they have been exposed in this mortality, but their essence will not be destroyed. That is to say, there's a renewed image of God, a, a platform for communication with God immediately in his presence forever. And in fact, that speaks furthermore to the idea that there is a spiritual sight that we'll have of God, that somehow we'll be transformed and have an imparted ability to directly see God. Revelation 21, 22 to 23. I saw no temple in it, that's the new heavens and new earth, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it. And the lamp is the lamp. That's a stunning passage. And speaking of the immediate, what's called the, the immediate beatific vision of God that we'll have. And in that passage, Churchin speaks uh, later of its implications to pr participation of the very divine nature of God himself. Writes, writing this, from this will afterwards flow a perfect likeness of the saints to God, the fulfillment of their desires and of their perfect happiness to which it tends, and in which is consummated. This is nothing else than a certain effusion and emanation of the deity upon the souls of the saints, communicating to them the image of all his perfections as much as they can belong unto a creature. Wow. But what's he saying? Well, there's several other classical theological categories. So, whereas Adam was what they call, he was able not to sin, yet he did choose to sin, and so he died. Afterwards, as sinners, we're not able not to sin. So, from our hearts being corrupted in Adam, there is no good deed that we're able to do that can't result in sin, even our righteous deeds, according to Isaiah, are filthy garments before God's sight. However, in this future state, what uh, the Bible is speaking of here, with the illumination and the filling of the glory of God, and what Turretin is speaking of here, he's talking about the fact that we will not be able to sin in the future. And as speaking of moral necessity, we'll always be present with the direct, revealed glory of God. You'll recall, in fact, that idea back in the garden of God wanting to walk to be in direct communion with Adam. And before then was when he falls, right? So we see, in fact, in Revelation, a perfect restoration of the Edenic state, made more permanent than had been in the, that first state. Again, I know I've quoted him a lot already, but Turretin says this, The saints will find in God whatever is necessary for them, for... As he is infinite and the inexhaustible fountain of all blessings, he also has that with which he can satisfy the necessities and desires of all. 
The same one who illuminates, feeds, heals, protects, enriches, and works all things in all. Or in the words of scripture itself, Revelation 22.1-5, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will be no longer any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his slaves will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of the Lamb nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever. This is to say, this is a real, a very real platform upon which we can worship God forever into eternity. And note in particular, is another thing, Turton wants to devote a lot of time to, Edwards devotes a considerable amount of, of time to in his writings as well. Uh, this isn't just a static state. I think sometimes... We envision the heavenly state because of pop culture and whatever other influences out there is we're just kind of sitting on clouds, strumming harps forever. You know, you'll see that imagery. Turretin says, well, the heavenly state's going to be great. We're going to be doing a lot of things like strumming harps. And it's kind of like, that's the opposite of what I think when I think that we're doing a lot of really great things in heaven forever and ever and ever. But his point was that we're going to have culture even in heaven. We're going to have development of life. We're going to have an exciting, a rejuvenated experience. There's a dynamic and eternal growth in heaven. There's going to be culture, fellowship, work. And we're even going to enjoy food and drink. That passage that I just read, I think most probably that's speaking of the fact that if we take that literally, that's speaking of actual fruit that we're going to have on this on this tree um, and that we're going to be able to in some way eat in a way that doesn't reflect corruption, which is a fascinating concept. In fact, you even see cities here. One of my former professors talked about the fact that Creation begins in the garden, and then we have this cultural mandate from God to grow and multiply and expand and to be stewards of the earth, right? And we look at the end of creation, we look at the new heavens and the new earth, and it's a city. A city that uh, is made with these magnificent walls, and in fact a new Jerusalem. Even more so, however, than that, uh, there is a perpetual growth, a perpetual spiritual growth that comes with being in communion with God forever. That is to say, in a sense, we'll be doing theology forever, which I understand for some might be a tedious concept, but in this sense, it's an enlivening concept, an invigorating concept. As I quoted earlier, John 17.3, where Christ says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And later, in that high priestly prayer, he says this, which I quoted last week. He's praying on our behalf, and he's asking the Father, saying this, The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. 
What's he saying here? What he's saying, the finite restored image of God is the very condition for our eternal participation in the divine in the divine glory. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that in a moment, won't we? Let me just quote Jonathan Edwards on this. Jonathan Edwards says, as speaking of what he calls an increasing union and conformity through eternity, uh, he t- cites these verses and then he notes the following. The image is more and more perfect. And so the good that is in the creature comes forever nearer and nearer to an identity with that of God. And the view, therefore, of God, who has a comprehensive prospect of the increasing unity and conformity through eternity, it must be an infinitely strict and perfect nearness, conformity, and oneness. For it will forever come nearer and nearer to that strictness and perfection of union which there is between the Father and the Son. Wow, that's a glorious truth. I think what he's trying to say there is that with our renewed faculties in the image of God, with our renewed platform for being able to partake of the divine nature, to, to be able to commune with God, to enjoy his presence, that we're actually going to, in some way, in the eternal state forever and ever, enter into the Trinitarian communion that there is between Father and Son. And in fact, because we're finite beings, right, uh, that's going to be an unending exploration. And that's wonderful. Uh, Some people really throw around the difficulty of, well, we're finite and God's eternal. How is this really going to work in eternity? You know, well, it's because we're finite. It's because God created us and created us with these amazing faculties that we'll be able to never exhaust that communion with him forever and ever and ever. There's an unending growth that is in nearness to and resemblance of God that will never be reached. And praise God for that. As Paul writes in Romans 9.23, which will truly be vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Or in the words of Ephesians 1.6, we'll be able to praise, quote, to the praise of the glory of his grace for all eternity. So it's that realm of grace, that realm of participation in the Lord that constitutes eternal life. And it's, as I said, it's a quality. It's not something that is just duration, but it's because of who we will be remade into the image of God that enables us to partake in that heavenly glory forever and ever as his creatures. Now, I thought I'd give some points of application. I've been doing that at the end of these sessions. And I think the most direct one is to simply praise God, right? Um, This is a glorious truth. And it's humbling to realize that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that he, in his grace, decided to make us partakers of that grace through Jesus Christ. And that's something that we can do now, in fact. Uh, we can actually enter into the same praise that we'll have in the eternal state when we praise God and we thankful, thank Him and we live thankful and holy lives before Him. And in fact, that brings us to a second point uh, that Peter will actually bring up in 2 Peter 2.11. When he says, What sort of people ought you to be in holiness of conduct and godliness 
And he's speaking there in light of the future state, in light of eschatology. And he's saying that considering we have that weight before us of Christ's imminence and his return and his coming back, and we have all eternity before us that should impress upon us the need to want to be holy, to want to be like him, to want to conduct ourselves in resemblance of him. And a third point that I would like to bring is that this has a very direct uh, call to repentance. I wasn't simply giving all that talk about what death means just for the sake of being morbid. Um, that there really is a very valuable ability that we have to, to call people to repentance. As this text here in Revelation 22 says, right? It ends with that call. The spirit and the bride say, come. There's an open invitation to partake in God's glory forever and ever, to repent and to place your hope and faith in Jesus Christ alone. For in him alone comes the knowledge of God and eternal life. So let me close in prayer, and then we'll have some questions and answers. Heavenly Father, again, uh, this is a difficult subject to entreat upon. This is the very threshold of your glory that we're talking about. This is the eternal state, and we know that you're limited, and we'll never be able to on earth, because of our limitations, both sinful and, and, and created as we are now, we'll, we'll never be able to fully comprehend that, but we're thankful, Lord, that you've enabled through your grace that we can contemplate that forever and ever, and that we'll be freed and liberated in our hearts and minds to be able to explore you, Lord. Humble us before you. Give us renewed vigor so that we can live lives that are exemplary. This amazing truth, the amazing calling that you've given us in Jesus Christ. I'm sure you don't have any questions at all about the eternal state or what any of that meant. I know that it was a lot... have any questions, shoot a hand up. Tyler, I see it. Why don't you go go ahead, you can ask some questions first. What were you talking about? Yeah, so we were talking about the the ability that we will have as creatures to be able to uh, participate in God's glory, to be able to love Him. Right, so God is a perfect creature, right? And he's able to, uh, it's, it's hard for us to talk to him. It's hard for us to be in communion with him, to love him rightly. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. Right, only God makes mistakes. And so, or only we make mistakes, sorry. Only God doesn't make mistakes. That's what we call bad theology. Um, but right, um, so only we make mistakes. But what we're talking about here is that God has created us so that in some day uh, we can love Him better, and, and we won't make mistakes. And that's a wonderful, wonderful truth that He's promised us in His Word. So, in First Corinthians, when it says, "You know, we will behold Him and we will be transformed from mm-hmm. His like one degree of glory into another," right? Is that something about the new glory? Final state when we see him face to face, we ultimately change between the eye and mm-hmm. 
<laughs> yeah. When we see something, we become like it. I mean, is there? Some, I've always wondered how does that. So un, yeah, underlying that passage, there, there's several things going on there. Um, it, it's probably speaking not just right of, 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 of a physical sight; it's a spiritual beholding that we'll we'll have. Um, and there's the idea that. God's glory is so effectual. In fact, uh, and it's talked about in First uh, Corinthians three. Uh, you kind of see it a little bit there. If any man builds on the foundation gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. The day will show itself because it will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each man's work. If each man's work which he's built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If uh, any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. So it's through fire. And talks about the dwelling of God in people's bodies as the Holy with the through the Holy Spirit. So it's almost the idea that God's glory is so uh, is so powerful and effectual that when it shows up and you see it immediately, everything that isn't pure and holy before Him is 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 purged away. It's done away from His presence, um, and all that remains is anything that's in likeness with Himself. Um, and it's so theologians throw around like exactly how this works. You know, they'll they'll get into kind of the really detailed metaphysics of it. And I would encourage you to go ahead and try and find a copy of Turretin. I think he's more biblical about it, and he talks about it in depth um, in in a very scholastic form. But he gets really into the the details of it. If you want to really search out, kind of like what does that mean? You know, it's. I think he's written all quite a bit about it that I found somewhat helpful. But, yeah. Ben. Yeah. I could be explained. Okay. Yeah. You've talked about us being essentially this psychosomatic unit. Yes. Right? Um, I suppose the question is something about how how do we end up the same beings after the resurrection as before death? Yeah. Because it seems yeah like we spend at least some time in the intermediate state mm-hmm. not being the same psychosomatic unit. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought you were going to bring up the, the cannibal question. No, so I something I wanted to call the cannibal question. The cannibal okay. question's that, nice. That's a, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there is the idea that there's some sort of, and again, um, well, I can, I'll refer you to uh, John Cooper, uh, he's written a bit about the intermediate state and the idea of the holistic psychosomatic unity. Um, and he has a whole section on the intermediate state that he finds fascinating. And he's the one that throws around that God's going to give us a provisional body. But he in, ends, ends the discussion by saying, there's something about this state that I, I'm not sure exactly how this works. Because I, you know, the biblical the biblical teaching clearly says we're gonna that our great hope is that we're going to be resurrected in body and soul, and we're going to be reunited then, and it's this amazing, amazing renewal. Um, but that also Paul says, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, and he talks about it as this 
a wonderful state where we're, you know, if I die, I'm going to be in God's presence. That's wonderful. Um, but then you might wrote, reply to Paul, but we're not ha- we don't have our bodies, so how can we be experiencing any of that? So I guess I'm kind of, um, kind of punting on that one, aren't I? Because the answer is there's something about that glorified state that we don't quite know yet, but um, we do seem to have a kind of some sort of provisional body, I guess that's, that's what I'll say, so that we can at least interact in some way. Right. Yeah. So I guess what, yeah. what I'm talking about, if I am, mm-hmm. if what I am yeah. is this particular psychosomatic video, mm-hmm. then I am not the psychosomatic thing is formed by my soul in a different body. Yeah. Yeah. But if I'm just my soul, mm-hmm. the body seems a whole lot less important. Yeah. I mean, that's something that you'd have to, I guess, you'll just have to ask God when you get to the eternal state, how, how he works that out. Because the idea is that you're in communion with God and you're held by his power somehow. Right. And that's, that's the only way that I have to answer that, that question. Yeah. Sorry, Ben. I know that's not intellectually satisfying, but it's 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 what we've got. Yeah. 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 It's, I'll be honest about it. Yeah. Yes, in the back. Yeah. I mean, I think underlying that, if I'm understanding you correctly, is the understanding when we pray, we're not necessarily um, calling God down from heaven. Um, that when we pray, it's more like He's, it's us humbling ourselves before Him and lifting ourselves up to Him. So there's not necessarily a break between. Um, us making God do something different when we pray, but it's more like we're being conformed to Him greater. Did that did that answer the question? Or? To a certain extent. Okay. So that goes back to a very basic distinction of, of the creator versus creature, which is so fundamental to impress upon people. Because people will assume that, won't they? They'll assume, they'll, they'll think, you know, God can be part of me. He can be part of who I want, who I wish, who I desire, you know. Um, whereas that's in a way you could almost respond when people say that, right, with Paul in Romans 1 when he says people have exchanged the image of, of God for the image of themselves. And in that way, they're almost kind of putting God in, or putting themselves in the place of God when they're saying something like that. Whereas we're able to actually give a pretty good rebuff to that and say, you know, well, 
the point, the goal of, of eternal life and blessedness is actually like humble submission before him and, and loving him in who we are without ourselves becoming God or not becoming God. Um, but we're able to love him and adore him and worship him forever, which is a whole lot better because he's a whole lot more than, than we are. Um, Well, it's 9.45, so I think it's a good time to dismiss and matriculate upstairs. Thank you so much for coming out to the Sunday School Library.